Book First, Chapter First, Parts Seven to Nine of Tono Bungay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Tono Bungay by H. G. Wells. Book First, Chapter First, Parts Seven to Nine. 7. And then, when I had newly passed my fourteenth birthday, came my tragic disgrace. It was in my midsummer holidays that the thing happened, and it was through the Honorable Beatrice Normandy. She had come into my life, as they say, before I was twelve. She descended unexpectedly into a peaceful interlude that followed the annual going of those three great women. She came into the old nursery upstairs and every day she had tea with us in the housekeeper's room. She was eight, and she came with a nurse called Nanny, and, to begin with, I did not like her at all. Nobody liked this eruption into the downstairs rooms. The two gave trouble, a dire offense. Nanny's sense of duty to her charge led to requests and demands that took my mother's breath away. Eggs at unusual times, the reboiling of milk, the rejection of an excellent milk pudding not negotiated respectfully but dictated as of right nanny was a dark long-featured taciturn woman in a grey dress she had a furtive inflexibility of manner that finally dismayed and crushed and overcame she conveyed she was under orders like a greek tragedy she was that strange product of the old time a devoted trusted servant she had, as it were, banked all her pride and will with the greater, more powerful people who employed her in return for a lifelong security of servitude. The bargain was none the less binding for being implicit. Finally, they were to pension her, and she would die the hated treasure of a boarding-house. She had built up in herself an enormous habit of reference to these upstairs people she had curbed down all discordant murmurings of her soul her very instincts were perverted or surrendered she was sexless her personal pride was all transferred she mothered another woman's child with a hard joyless devotion that was at least entirely compatible with a stoical separation she treated us all as things that counted for nothing save to fetch and carry for her charge but the honourable beatrice could condescend. The queer chances of later years came between me and a distinctly separated memory of that childish face. When I think of Beatrice, I think of her as I came to know her at a later time, when at last I came to know her so well that indeed now I could draw her, and show a hundred little delicate things you would miss in looking at her. But even then I remember how I noted the infinite delicacy of her childish skin and the fine eyebrow, finer than the finest feather that ever one felt on the breast of a bird. She was one of those elfin, rather precocious little girls, quick-colored, with dark hair, naturally curling, dusky hair that was sometimes astray over her eyes, and eyes that were sometimes impishly dark, and sometimes a clear brown-yellow and from the very outset after a most cursory attention to rabbits she decided that the only really interesting thing at the tea-table was myself 
The elders talked in their formal, dull way, telling Nanny the trite old things about the park and the village that they told everyone, and Beatrice watched me across the table with a pitiless little curiosity that made me uncomfortable. "'Nanny,' she said, pointing, and Nanny left a question of my mother's disregarded to attend to her. "'Is he a servant boy?' "'Shh!' said Nanny. "'He's Master Ponderevo.' "'Is he a servant boy?' repeated Beatrice. "'He's a schoolboy,' said my mother. "'Then may I talk to him, Nanny?' Nanny surveyed me with brutal inhumanity. "'You mustn't talk too much,' she said to her charge, and cut cake into fingers for her. "'No,' she added decisively, as Beatrice made to speak. Beatrice became malignant. Her eyes explored me with unjustifiable hostility. "'He's got dirty hands,' she said, stabbing at the forbidden fruit. "'And there's a fray to his collar.' Then she gave herself up to cake with an appearance of entire forgetfulness of me that filled me with hate and a passionate desire to compel her to admire me. And the next day before tea I did, for the first time in my life, freely, without command or any compulsion, wash my hands. So our acquaintance began, and presently was deepened by a whim of hers. She had a cold and was kept indoors, and confronted Nanny suddenly with the alternative of being hopelessly naughty, which in her case involved a generous amount of screaming unsuitable for the ears of an elderly, shaky, rich aunt, or having me up to the nursery to play with her all the afternoon. Nanny came downstairs and borrowed me in a careworn manner, and I was handed over to the little creature as if I was some large variety of kitten. I had never had anything to do with a little girl before. I thought she was more beautiful and wonderful and bright than anything else could possibly be in life, and she found me the gentlest of slaves, though at the same time, as I made evident, fairly strong and nanny was amazed to find the afternoon slip cheerfully and rapidly away she praised my manners to lady drew and to my mother who said she was glad to hear well of me and after that i played with beatrice several times the toys she had remain in my memory still as great splendid things gigantic to all my previous experience of toys and we even went to the great doll's house on the nursery landing to play discreetly with that the great doll's house that the Prince Regent had given Sir Henry Drew's firstborn, who died at five, that was a not ineffectual model of Bladesover itself, and contained eighty-five dolls and had cost hundreds of pounds. I played under imperious direction with that toy of glory. I went back to school when that holiday was over, dreaming of beautiful things, and got Ewart to talk to me of love and i made a great story out of the doll's house a story that taken over into ewart's hands speedily grew to an island doll's city all our own one of the dolls i privately decided was like beatrice one other holiday there was when i saw something of her oddly enough my memory of that second holiday in which she played a part is vague and then came a gap of a year and then my disgrace Eight. Now I sit down to write my story and tell over again things in their order. I find for the first time how inconsecutive and irrational a thing the memory can be. 
One recalls acts and cannot recall motives. One recalls quite vividly moments that stand out inexplicably, things adrift, joining on to nothing, leading nowhere. I think I must have seen Beatrice and her half-brother quite a number of times in my last holiday at Bladesover, but I really cannot recall more than a little of the quality of the circumstances. That great crisis of my boyhood stands out very vividly as an effect, as a sort of cardinal thing for me, but when I look for details, particularly details that led up to the crisis, I cannot find them in any developing order at all. This half-brother, Archie Garvell, was a new factor in the affair. I remember him clearly as a fair-haired, supercilious-looking, weedily lank boy, much taller than I, but I should imagine very little heavier, and that we hated each other by a sort of instinct from the beginning. And yet I cannot remember my first meeting with him at all. Looking back into these past things, it is like rummaging in a neglected attic that has experienced the attentions of some whimsical robber. I cannot even account for the presence of these children at Bladesover. They were, I know, among the innumerable cousins of Lady Drew, and, according to the theories of downstairs candidates for the ultimate possession of Bladesover, if they were, their candidature was unsuccessful. But that great place, with all its faded splendor, its fine furniture, its large traditions, was entirely at the old lady's disposition, and I am inclined to think it is true that she used this fact to torment and dominate a number of eligible people. Lord Osprey was among the number of these, and she showed these hospitalities to his motherless child and stepchild, partly, no doubt, because he was poor, but quite as much, I nowadays imagine, in the dim hope of finding some affectionate or imaginative outcome of contact with them. Nanny had dropped out of the world this second time, and Beatrice was in the charge of an extremely amiable and ineffectual poor army-class young woman whose name I never knew. They were, I think, two remarkably ill-managed and enterprising children. I seem to remember, too, that it was understood that I was not a fit companion for them, and that our meetings had to be as unostentatious as possible. It was Beatrice who insisted upon our meeting. I am certain I knew quite a lot about love at fourteen, and that I was quite as much in love with Beatrice than as any impassioned adult could be, and that Beatrice was, in her way, in love with me. It is part of the decent and useful pretenses of our world that children of the age at which we were think nothing, feel nothing, know nothing of love. It is wonderful what people the English are for keeping up pretenses. But indeed, I cannot avoid telling that Beatrice and I talked of love and kissed and embraced one another. I recall something of one talk under the overhanging bushes of the shrubbery. I, on the park side of the stone wall, and the lady of my worship, a little inelegantly astride thereon. Inelegantly, do I say? You should have seen the sweet imp as I remember her. Just her poise on the wall comes suddenly clear before me, and behind her the light various branches of the bushes of the shrubbery that my feet might not profane and far away and high behind her, dim and stately, the cornice of the great façade of Bladesover rose against the dappled sky. Our talk must have been serious and businesslike, for we were discussing my social position. 
"'I don't love Archie,' she had said, apropos of nothing. And then, in a whisper, leaning forward with the hair about her face, "'I love you.' But she had been a little pressing to have it clear that I was not and could not be a servant. "'You'll never be a servant. Ever.' I swore that very readily, and it is a vow I have kept by nature. "'What will you be?' said she. I ran my mind hastily over the professions. "'Will you be a soldier?' she asked. "'And be bald at by duffers?' "'No fear,' said I. "'Leave that to the ploughboys.' "'But an officer?' "'I don't know,' I said, evading a shameful difficulty. "'I'd rather go into the Navy.' "'Wouldn't you like to fight?' I'd like to fight, I said, but a common soldier is no honor to have to be told to fight and to be looked down upon while you do it. And how could I be an officer? Couldn't you be? she said, and looked at me doubtfully, and the spaces of the social system opened between us. Then, as became a male of spirit, I took upon myself to brag and lie my way through this trouble. I said I was a poor man and poor men went into the navy, that I knew mathematics, which no army officer did, and I claimed Nelson for an exemplar, and spoke very highly of my outlook upon blue water. He loved Lady Hamilton, I said, although she was a lady, and I will love you. We were somewhere near that, when the egregious governess became audible, calling, Beatrice! Beatrice! "'Sniftly beast,' said my lady, and tried to get on with the conversation, but that governess made things impossible. "'Come here,' said my lady suddenly, holding out a grubby hand, and I went very close to her, and she put her little head down upon the wall until her black fog of hair tickled my cheek. "'You are my humble, faithful lover,' she demanded in a whisper her warm, flushed face near touching mine, and her eyes very dark and lustrous. "'I am your humble, faithful lover,' I whispered back. And she put her arm about my head, and put out her lips, and we kissed. And, boy, though I was, I was all a-tremble. So we two kissed for the first time. "'Beatrice!' fearfully close. My lady had vanished with one wild kick of her black stocking leg. A moment after I heard her sustaining the reproaches of her governess, and explaining her failure to answer with an admirable lucidity and disingenuousness. I felt it was unnecessary for me to be seen just then, and I vanished guiltily round the corner into the west wood, and so to love dreams and single-handed play, wandering along one of those meandering bracken valleys that varied Bladesover Park and that day and for many days that kiss upon my lips was a seal and by night the seed of dreams then i remember an expedition we made she i and her half-brother into those west woods they too were supposed to be playing in the shrubbery and how we were indians there and made a wigwam out of a pile of beech logs and how we stalked deer crept near and watched rabbits feeding in a glade and almost got a squirrel it was play seasoned with plentiful disputing between me and young Garvel, for each firmly insisted upon the leading roles, and only my wider reading—I had read ten stories to his one—gave me the ascendancy over him. 
Also, I scored over him by knowing how to find the eagle in a bracken stem. And somehow, I don't remember what led to it at all, I and Beatrice, two hot and ruffled creatures, crept in among the tall bracken and hid from him. The great fronds rose above us, five feet or more, and as I had learnt how to wriggle through that undergrowth with the minimum of betrayal by tossing greenery above, I led the way. The ground under bracken is beautifully clear and faintly scented in warm weather. The stems come up black and then green. If you crawl flat, it is a tropical forest in miniature. I led the way, and Beatrice crawled behind, and then, as the green of the further glade opened before us, stopped. She crawled up to me. Her hot little face came close to mine. Once more she looked and breathed close to me, and suddenly she flung her arm about my neck and dragged me to earth beside her and kissed me and kissed me again. We kissed, we embraced and kissed again, all without a word. We desisted, we stared and hesitated. Then, in a suddenly damped mood, and a little perplexed at ourselves, crawled out to be presently run down and caught in the tamest way by Archie. That comes back very clearly to me, and other vague memories. I know old Hall and his gun, out shooting at jackdaws, came into our common experiences, but I don't remember how. And then, at last, abruptly, our fight in the Warrens stands out. The Warren, like most places in England that have that name, was not particularly a Warren. It was a long slope of thorns and beeches through which a path ran, and made an alternative route to the downhill carriage road between Bladesover and Ropedean. I don't know how we three got there, but I have an uncertain fancy it was connected with a visit paid by the governess to the Rope Dean Vicarage people. But suddenly Archie and I, in discussing a game, fell into a dispute for Beatrice. I had made him the fairest offer. I was to be a Spanish nobleman, she was to be my wife, and he was to be a tribe of Indians trying to carry her off. It seems to me a fairly attractive offer to a boy to be a whole tribe of Indians with a chance of such a booty. But Archie suddenly took offense. No, he said, we can't have that. Can't have what? You can't be a gentleman, because you aren't. And you can't play Beatrice is your wife. It's, it's impertinent. But, I said, and looked at her. Some earlier grudge in the day's affairs must have been in Archie's mind. "'We let you play with us,' said Archie, "'but we can't have things like that.' "'What rot!' said Beatrice. "'He can if he likes.' But he carried his point. I let him carry it, and only began to grow angry three or four minutes later. Then we were still discussing play and disputing about another game. Nothing seemed right for all of us.' "'We don't want you to play with us at all,' said Archie. "'He drops his H's like anything.' "'No, he doesn't,' said I, in the heat of the moment. "'There you go,' he cried. "'E,' he says. "'E, E, E.' He pointed a finger at me. He had struck to the heart of my shame. I made the only possible reply by a rush at him. "'Hello,' he cried, at my black-aviced attack. He dropped back into an attitude that had some style in it, parried my blow, got back at my cheek, and laughed with surprise and relief at his own success. Whereupon I became a thing of murderous rage. 
He could box as well or better than I. He had yet to realize I knew anything of that at all, but I had fought once or twice to a finish with bare fists. I was used to inflicting and enduring savage hurting, and I doubt if he had ever fought. I hadn't fought ten seconds before I felt this softness in him, realized all that quality of modern upper-class England that never goes to the quick, that hedges about rules and those petty points of honor that are the ultimate comminution of honor, that claims credit for things demonstrably half done. He seemed to think that first hit of his, and one or two others, were going to matter, that I ought to give in when presently my lip bled and dripped blood upon my clothes. So, before we had been at it a minute, he had ceased to be aggressive except in momentary spurts, and I was knocking him about almost as I wanted to, and demanding breathlessly and fiercely after our school manner whether he had had enough, not knowing that by his high code and his soft training it was equally impossible for him to either buck up and beat me or give in. I have a very distinct impression of Beatrice dancing about us during the affair in a state of unladylike appreciation, but I was too preoccupied to hear much of what she was saying. But she certainly backed us both, and I am inclined to think now, it may be the disillusionment of my ripened years, whichever she thought was winning. Then young Garville, giving way before my slogging, stumbled and fell over a big flint, and I, still following the tradition of my class and school, promptly flung myself on him to finish him. We were busy with each other on the ground when we became aware of a dreadful interruption. "'Shut up, you fool!' said Archie. "'Oh, Lady Drew!' I heard Beatrice cry. "'They're fighting! They're fighting something awful!' I looked over my shoulder. Archie's wish to get up became irresistible, and my resolve to go on with him vanished altogether. I became aware of the two old ladies, presences of black and purple silk and fur and shining dark things. They had walked up through the warren, while the horses took the hill easily, and so had come upon us. Beatrice had gone to them at once with an air of taking refuge, and stood beside and a little behind them. We both rose dejectedly. The two old ladies were evidently quite dreadfully shocked, and peering at us with their poor old eyes, and never had I seen such a tremblement in Lady Drew's lorgnettes. "'You've never been fighting,' said Lady Drew. "'You have been fighting.' "'It was improper fighting,' snapped Archie, with accusing eyes on me. "'It's Mrs. Ponderevo's George.' said Miss Somerville, so adding a conviction for ingratitude to my evident sacrilege. "'How could he dare?' cried Lady Drew, becoming very awful. "'He broke the rules,' said Archie, sobbing for breath. "'I slipped, and he hit me while I was down. He knelt on me.' "'How could you dare?' said Lady Drew. I produced an experienced handkerchief rolled up into a tight ball and wiped the blood from my chin, but I offered no explanation of my daring. Among other things that prevented that, I was too short of breath. "'He didn't fight fair,' sobbed Archie. Beatrice, from behind the old ladies, regarded me intently and without hostility. I am inclined to think the modification of my face through the damage to my lip interested her. It became dimly apparent to my confused intelligence that I must not say these two had been playing with me. That would not be after the rules of their game. 
I resolved in this difficult situation upon a sulky silence, and to take whatever consequences might follow. 9. The powers of justice in Bladesover made an extraordinary mess of my case. I have regretfully to admit that the Honorable Beatrice Normandy did, at the age of ten, betray me, abandon me, and lie most abominably about me. She was, as a matter of fact, panic-stricken about me, conscience-stricken too. She bolted from the very thought of my being her affianced lover, and so forth. From the faintest memory of kissing, she was indeed altogether disgraceful and human in her betrayal. She and her half-brother lied in perfect concord, and I was presented as a wanton assailant of my social betters. They were waiting about in the warren when I came up and spoke to them, etc. On the whole, I now perceive Lady Drew's decisions were, in the light of the evidence, reasonable and merciful. They were conveyed to me by my mother, who was, I really believe, even more shocked by the grossness of my social insubordination than Lady Drew. She dilated on her ladyship's kindnesses to me, on the effrontery and wickedness of my procedure, and so came at last to the terms of my penance. You must go up to young Mr. Garvell and beg his pardon. I won't beg his pardon, I said, speaking for the first time. My mother paused, incredulous. I folded my arms on her tablecloth and delivered my wicked little ultimatum. I won't beg his pardon no how, I said. See? Then you will have to go off to your Uncle Frapp at Chatham. I don't care where I have to go or what I have to do. I won't beg his pardon, I said. And I didn't. After that, I was one against the world. Perhaps in my mother's heart there lurked some pity for me, but she did not show it. She took the side of the young gentleman. She tried hard, she tried very hard, to make me say I was sorry I had struck him. Sorry. I couldn't explain. So I went into exile in the dog-cart to Redwood Station, with Jukes the coachman, coldly silent, driving me and all my personal belongings in a small American cloth portmanteau behind. I felt I had much to embitter me. The game had, and the beginnings of fairness by any standards I knew, but the thing that embittered me most was that the Honorable Beatrice Normandy should have repudiated and fled from me as though I was some sort of leper and not even have taken a chance or so to give me a good-bye. She might have done that anyhow. Supposing I had told on her. But the son of a servant counts as a servant. She had forgotten, and now remembered. I solaced myself with some extraordinary dream of coming back to Bladesover, stern, powerful, after the fashion of Coriolanus. I do not recall the details, but I have no doubt I displayed great magnanimity. Well, anyhow, I never said I was sorry for pounding young Garvell, and I am not sorry to this day. End of Book First, Chapter First, Parts 7 to 9. Recording by William Tomko.